Okay, everybody, thanks for listening today. I am super excited to have Marilyn Sosback on the phone with me. She's in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and she owns a fantastic restaurant that I've actually been to, Langosta Lounge, as well as several other restaurants up there. She's been in the business uh, for a while. She's self-taught. She's driven, determined, has a huge heart, is a great leader, and uh, a very admired business person in uh, in her area there. So, Marilyn, um, and a very busy lady, so, uh, so thank you for taking time to do this today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so you, so let's get, let's go back to the beginning because I think your story, I was always really interested in your story. So, um, just let's, tell me and the folks listening here, your, your background in the business and kind of the, the situation that happened that, you know, kind of got you into the restaurant business in the first place. Okay. Well, about 30 years ago, a little more, um, my mom was diagnosed with, uh, terminal cancer she had about a month to live as far as the doctors were saying. And my brother at the time was into macrobiotic foods. And he decided to bring her up to a hospital up in Massachusetts run by the Cushy Foundation to um, get her on a macrobiotic diet and see if that could help with what she was going through. And he did, and it did, and I was 18 years old at the time, and I I saw a person that I loved go from 30 days to live to a full remission, and Mm. it was a partnership between her chemotherapy and her diet. And as a young kid in the 80s, I surely grew up with a lot of processed junk food. That was the beginning of cheeses with color and Doritos and Diet Cokes and all these things that were induced with um, things that you can't even pronounce. And from my mother's clean food alteration, she was able to heal herself. And that was amazing transformation for me into the world of uh, local foods and how they can not only fulfill your body and your stomach, but they can fulfill your soul. And I embarked on a little bit of a culinary journey. We had a chef at a restaurant that my brother owned at the time called Ocean, which was a French-Japanese sushi bar in New Jersey in Avon. And I was a waitress there. And uh, one weekend, my brother was away, and the chef didn't show up for some personal reasons. And I went into the kitchen and got on the line and through my big portable phone, was able to be talked through an evening of of craziness. And the end result of it was I was hooked. And I was like, I felt the best I had ever felt in life about passion and my creative self. Um, I come from a family of very adventurous people who have done great things, artists, dancers, singers, um, explorers. And I never really had my talent that I innately could do for myself to make me passionate about the world. And when I got on that line, something clicked. And from that day forward, that's what I did. And I read every cookbook I could find. At that time, we didn't really have the Internet, so couldn't Google anything. And you had to get all your resources from books and libraries. And to this day, I have a cookbook collection of thousands of cookbooks that over the years – 
um, have helped transform my culinary career and also inspired me and my travels and where I go and eat. I'm always looking for other people's inspiration. But it all stemmed from a healing place for me as a woman, as a child, and as a, a culinary inspiration, you know. That it's just one of the more inspiring and memorable stories I've heard from all the folks in the restaurant business I've talked to in the years of doing this. Um, that moment is what's so interesting to me. The moment where you were thrown into the fire, so to speak, had to learn quickly and you were you were literally on the phone is that right with yeah yeah we didn't have be, being talked back through then. What, what what to do right um was that so i i find that to be so fascinating did you know did you say did you know that night this was something yeah. or tell me what what happened after i mean so you did that and then this was just sort of a you know a, a quick last second thing you got through it to me that would be a moment where I'd say, "Oh, thank goodness I got through that." That's wow, over. that was scary. I don't want to do that <laughs> again. But you said I want to do that. Is that when you knew you, this was what you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I mean, I always knew what food was supposed to look like in the restaurant and what customers' feedback on it was. But at that moment in time, I had never prepped anything or cooked anything in that restaurant. So just knowing when to flip a piece of fish or a steak over. I had to be talked through on the phone that night. And I just, the like, um, I don't know, the, there's something about the restaurant industry that's hypnotic and it's um, addictive. It's very high-paced and chaotic. And those things I was used to because I did work on the floor and I loved the fast pace of the industry and the people. But when I got into the culinary world, for me, it was a passion for food and the palate that I, I've i been told I have a talent for, which is one of the innate things that a great chef has that you can't really be taught if you have a balanced, good palate. And just being able to really hone into something special for myself that could please people, that was creative, but wasn't a traditional creative thing at that time, especially for women. Um, chefs mm. weren't thought of as these great Hollywood stars that they are now when I started. And I was probably one of the only women in the industry that I knew and definitely in the Japanese world. A um, lot of challenges with trying to deal with uh, Japanese purveyors and chefs for a woman. But I didn't think of it that way. I just was really excited to have something I was passionate about and you know, I'm reading a great book called Think Grow Rich that was built that was written at the time of Andrew Carnegie that talks about all these things that people who do great things have and one of them is desire and one of them is persistence. And you just don't think about it, you just do it. So after mm. that summer I was driving south um through a little town called Bayhead, New Jersey. That's a little coastal, sleepy winter town. But in the summer, it's pretty vibrant. And I saw a for rent sign on this cute little cottage 
tucked back behind this real estate office down an alleyway. So I walked down the alleyway, and it was, the whole alley was filled with edible flowers. And there was this cute little courtyard with this beautiful garden and a little tiny house. And so I knocked on the door and asked the guy what was going on. And he said, um, the chef that was supposed to come in and had had this restaurant before backed out at the very last minute. I'll give it to you for the season for $3,000. Now, today's world, that doesn't seem like much for rent. But back then, for me, at my age, I was like 22 years old or 21. I had just lost my parents. I didn't have any money. I wanted this, so I got every friend I could to help me come up with the money and paint the place and decorate it. And I had all my cookbooks, and I figured out a menu from all the dishes in the cookbooks that I liked, and I opened this little restaurant called Rosalie's Kitchen, and mm -hmm. I named it after this woman who used to be the um, cleaning lady for my boyfriend at the time, or we weren't dating when I opened the restaurant, but we had been, and she was from uh, North Carolina, this African-American woman. She was a beautiful soul, and any time I would be sick and I'd be over Mark's house, she would whip me up something from her garden, some sort of concoction with lemongrass or lemon balm or ginger. And back then, you know, that wasn't the norm in our world. You know, today everybody is very interested in farm to table and all different experiments with herbs and, and different vegetables and fruits. But back then that was very rare. And she was such an inspiration to me. And she was 92 when I opened the restaurant and I, called Mark and I said, you need to pass this message on to Rosalie that I finally opened my own restaurant and I named it after her because we used to sit around and have tea and I would say, Rosalie, if I ever have a restaurant someday, I'm going to name it after you because you hmm. are just a beautiful woman. So they brought her that summer, 92, brought her up from North Carolina. I gave her a Rosalie's Kitchen t-shirt, and she sat and had dinner with her little t-shirt on, and she was so excited. And it just, you know, broke my heart that, you know, this woman wasn't going to be around much longer at that point. But I was so excited that she got to see Rosalie's Kitchen before she died. And, um, you know, that was the birth of my career, that little restaurant. And just getting all my friends and what I call my ohana together to make it happen for me. And I literally took me a whole season before I made um, a dish on that menu that wasn't out of a cookbook. But when it happened, Mark even came down and brought me a big bottle of champagne and everybody was so excited. And I got a great review in the local paper and that was the birth of my career. What a special story and what a special way to honor Rosalie, um, you've been so you've really been exposed to to a couple of circumstances. One being your your mother's um, treatment, and another being uh, the stuff that Rosalie prepared. You were exposed many years ago to the idea of um, fresh, healthy, local, non-processed um, foods being very useful for more than just um, getting to the day, but for, for, for adding to our health. That's something yeah. that in 2016 we're finally starting to begin to understand. 
maybe again. I don't know, but with yeah. so much processed well, food for so many years, such a big part of our culture, it's almost like we're coming back around to stuff we knew a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, my dad was much older. He was 65 when I was born, and he was born in 1898. So when the trends of modern-day food uh, came into play in the late 70s, early 80s, my father was so adamantly against all of that just because, you know, what do you need that for? You You should just eat the plant. You should just eat the food. You don't need to add all that crap to it. And, you know, even with medicine, what do you need to take all those pills for? Just go out and pick some mint and put it in tea or have some ginger, you know, because in his generation, that's what you did. You didn't have all these antibiotics and all these concoctions that you take. And your food was what you grew or what you got from your neighbor who grew it and sold it, you know, so... We are getting back to our roots, and that's a great place to be. And, you know, not to be righteous here. I mean, I'm known to break open a bag of Doritos every once in a while and have a pepperoni pizza for sure. Um, But as your day-to-day, it's not just about the food you consume. It's also about supporting your environment and your neighbor in that, you know, kind of centrical process of sustainability that comes from growing food. Well, so take me back then to, so you you have Rosalie's, um, what happened from there? How long were you there and where did that lead you to? I was there for five years. Um, I met a guy, always about a guy, who convinced me to open another restaurant in Belmar called the Labrador Lounge. Um, I have a Labrador Lounge now, not in the same location and not with him, and through a kind of really not great relationship with a not great human being, um, I went through a process and lost both of those restaurants, one forcibly by him and the other one because of him. And um, kind of got out of things for a while, opened another small restaurant, which I hadn't healed as a person or a chef, and that one failed. And I went off the grid and became a snowboard rep and worked in the surf and snowboard industry for a while. And one of my customers saw me uh, at a snowboard shop and was like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I had to get out of the business. I just, you know, that relationship really did a number on me uh, mentally and financially and physically. And it was a horrible couple of years. And he had a bar in Manilokin called Used to Be's. And he said, well, I've got a kitchen, and we never have good food here. You know, we're a bar. How about I just give you my kitchen, and you just cook great food here. You can keep all the money you make in the kitchen. You don't have to pay me any rent. I just, it would be, you know, a shame to see you get out of it because your food is so great. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, just try it for one summer and see if you like it. And I said, okay, as long as I don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody knowing that I'm getting back into it. I don't, you know, I just want to cook and see how I feel about it. So I went in there and opened this little place called Cafe La Playa. Playa means beach in Spanish. And I had a dog at the time, for some reason, um, responded to Spanish words. I don't know who taught her. But when you would say, you want to go to La Playa, she would freak out. 
and you'd say you want to go to the beach and she didn't have any idea what you're talking about so we named the restaurant after that little anecdote and i cooked there for a few years i had a great time it was like you know a bar bar it wasn't a restaurant bar it was like this wild crazy summer bar and i had a blast i got to make great food nobody knew what, that i was there and then one day a local reporter who wrote for a local paper brought one of the people from James Beard in there for dinner. And I was so horrified because this place was like drunk, down, dirty bar. This wasn't a place that somebody from James Beard Foundation came to eat. And they ate and she called me and she said, you know, minus all the drunks, you know, looking over our food, it was an amazing meal. Mm. So she wrote a review about it and, you know, it gave me faith in my food again and got me back on track to want to do a restaurant, you know, a real restaurant, not a loud, crazy bar restaurant. And my boyfriend and I at the time were about to get engaged and we ended up buying a building in Normandy Beach and I had the old Labrador sign in my garage. So we brought the Labrador Lounge back to life with a more positive relationship and a more positive situation. We owned the building. The guy who owned the building ended up financing it for us because we had no money. And his wife looked exactly like my mother. And when we all met, we bonded and I cried and it was just like a wonderful experience again. So my culinary world has not maybe the most money, but it has given me so many precious experiences with so many people that, you know, it's priceless. Well, so when you had, I mean, a lot of this sounds like it's driven around relationships. When you, when you had, you know, you, you, um, the issues with Rosalie's and Labrador the first time, what, what did you learn from that experience that benefited you, you know, as you got back into the business? Well, I mean, relationships are key. And unfortunately, the hospitality industry is built around people and relationships. It's a people-driven business, which is an expensive business to be in when it's you need so many people involved in the process. And it's complicated, always, dealing with different temperaments, different ways of communication. Everybody comes from a different background, a different way of communicating with people. That is the most tiring thing about it. But in all of the restaurants I've had, there have been handfuls of people who are just really special people that I've gotten to know and be close with because of each individual restaurant. And everyone teaches me something new about food, teaches me something new about being a business owner because I am self-taught. So everything I've learned mostly comes from mistakes I've made, honestly. And I've made more mistakes probably than most people because I've attempted to do more things than most people. So with that comes more mistakes. But as I've grown and matured as a person, and a business owner, the culinary for me now is less of the focus. It's more about learning about how to run a business, how to empower people in my business, how to grow them as leaders, 
so that we can grow our company and open more businesses and now getting into other things like a cookbook and a food product and a toy product and we just launched a community vines a wine project last week for our local food bank we're partnering with a winemaker and a distributor and raising money for food organizations so my focus is definitely not in the kitchen on the line anymore but i'm now growing you know I learn about all the things i have to do in the business you know some of them not as pleasant as others you know the financials and the taxes and the payroll and all that but i've learned to make that rewarding by learning about it and and trying to do it better every day in my business um you know one great thing about our business is every day is an absolutely new day it's like an ocean it's never the same the people are never mm-hmm. the same the moods are always different the customers are always different um so it's always challenging but rewarding and interesting at the same time what are some of the um memorable i guess mistakes if you will that you've made along the way that were hard at the time perhaps but that you learned a lot from and are perhaps thankful for now if any um yeah i mean most of my mistakes were either with individual employees that i didn't know how to communicate with well to get both of us to perform better as people or um financial mistakes and when i was young i made a lot of financial mistakes i owed people money i didn't pay taxes the right way and i one in particular I had a contractor at a restaurant, very brief restaurant that was the one in between the bad relationship in the Labrador and then my break into the snowboard world. It was called the Karma Cafe. It was only open for a very brief period of time because I was really damaged as a person and I couldn't I just couldn't make the right choices in life. And I needed to heal, but I was young and I thought I could handle anything and I didn't feel that this person had hurt me as bad as he did and i owed a lot of people money when that restaurant closed and one of the people i owed money to i took me a few years to you know pay people off and to write letters to people and one of them i wrote a letter and i sent the check of it was like i forget like $3000 or something that i owed on this plumbing bill that i never paid and i'm still paying off some of that restaurant to this day and i vowed and still do that i will pay everybody back but i sent him a check and a letter explaining where i was at and why it took so long and my fear of contacting him and he wrote me back and with the voided check and said you know i've been following you and i see all the great things that you've done for people and i know how hard all of that was for you i can't take your money and i'll be in to always support you So that meant a lot. Mm. Wow. Because that was a really tough time and a tough time to overcome because, you know, for a person like me when you don't pay your debt in life or you don't you know, put what you need to to help people, it it weighs a lot of guilt. Mm. And uh that response, you know, was really special. It's a memory I'll always have. That's fantastic. Um what a great story. 
what a great person for for doing that. Uh, but your your honesty and authenticity, I'm sure, went a long way um, for that. So, well, so one thing that we talked a little bit before when I was there about the importance of you know when you're finding a location of of not getting so far ahead of yourself with falling in love with the location before you really understand um, the, the cost of that location and negotiating a good deal. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, our business in general is a business of passion. You know, if you're in this business, you're in it for not just money. It's not the, the biggest um, motivating factor and the margins are not that great and hospitality on an a la carte restaurant level. So, you know, because we're very driven as people in this industry by our creativity and our passion, it's very easy to get sucked into a building or a space because of what it looks like or where it is or a memory that you've had. I mean, I've done it. I had a beautiful, wonderful restaurant that everybody loved called Trinity and the Pope. Uh, it was inspired by a trip to New Orleans. The building looked like it could have been on any street in New Orleans, and we fell in love with it. And we created this great restaurant. We had New York Times articles. It was wonderful, but it was in a really bad location. And it was on a one-way street going the wrong way, no parking, no one could find us. I sometimes drove home from my other restaurant down the street, and because it was one way in the wrong direction, I would drive right by and not even check on it. That's how much I didn't think about it because of where it was. And for that reason and some other, you know, budgetary reasons, it didn't work. And I learned from that that you got to do your homework when you get into a lease or into a restaurant situation. And you have to do it for financial reasons as well as passion. Because at the end of the day, a dollar is a dollar, and if you overspend it, those dollars add up, and someday you're not going to be able to pay your bills. And, you know, I think a lot of people get into the business. I just had a call the other day about somebody wanting to come to Asbury Park. And I was like, you've got to do your homework here. you got to come in the winter. you got to come during the week. you got to look at the demographics, you can't just come here in the summer where when it's fun and vibrant and there's tons of people everywhere and say you're going to create a successful business here. You know, where we live, we're very seasonal. Even though people live here year-round, their patterns in the winter are very different than they are in the summer. And people hibernate more and they have kids and they have school functions and they don't go out all the time. And, you know, but people come into restaurants on Saturday night or summer and they're like wow you make a lot of money look at this place it's packed I'm like well try it on today Monday raining <laughs> Jersey Shore right. I probably have two tables you know so that's a big one and you know doing your homework reaching out to people that you feel confident to give you advice on the situation um, negotiating a lease is an arduous process you know I'm in one right now I was in one for a project for a year and a half, and then we didn't do the project because it just didn't make sense at the end of the day. We couldn't get the number to where both sides could be happy. 
and we had to walk away from all that work and money that we had put into it. But if I did it, I'd probably not be there long enough to reap any rewards, you know. Some point you really need say, to understand well, your numbers and have the discipline to walk away, it sounds like, no matter how great yeah. the location may seem. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you know, like with Trinity, the money we lost there, I could have gone to New Orleans like a dozen times, stayed in the finest places and eaten in the finest restaurants for the amount of money we lost, you know. Yeah. So sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And that's hard. What, what have you learned about, um, you said the other thing that, you know, mistakes you've made, that some have been the financial and some have been with people. Uh, how has your um how how have you evolved as as a manager of people and what have you learned about people in this business over your years well authentic communication is probably the key to life <laughs> that if i had to give a one sentence advice to everybody mm. that that's what you should be constantly working on doing better and it is probably the toughest thing for people to do because everybody communicates differently. We've all been raised differently. We've heard different things programmed into our brain as a kid. We've lived in different circumstances. It's by far the hardest thing to maneuver, but the most important challenge to overcome with people. And I'm honestly, I'm good at it when I put my mind to it, but it's one of the hardest things to take on for me with people. Because you can tell people exactly how you feel, but sometimes people don't hear what you're saying. And you have to figure out how to say it to them in a way that they can hear you. And that is an ongoing process for me in leadership to constantly work on in myself, on how to be able to talk to people so you're not hurtful and you're not mean, but you're also making them understand the situation the way you want them to. And that's tough. I think that's like to me when I can master that I will be a great leader. That's an ever evolving skill set I guess. Um that's that's really good advice um Marilyn. Um let me ask you this. You mentioned earlier that when you started there were not a lot of um first of all chefs weren't really glorified like they were and there weren't a lot of women chefs and women Restaurant owners, how has that changed over the years, um, and what are your thoughts about that now? Um, I think there's a lot more women getting into the industry, um, which is wonderful. I mean, when I started, I was shocked to see that that wasn't the case because as a kid, I thought women were what food was. My mother cooked, my aunts cooked, <laughs> they baked cookies at Christmas. I had no idea that in the food world, it was a very um, kind of conservative mentality and a male-dominated industry. And me being a liberal woman was a rarity. And over time, I think that shifted. I think all the food shows have been very beneficial in opening up the doors to all kinds of people to be in the industry. Um, with that comes some obstacles that these shows have created because a lot of people going into the industry think this is like a movie set and it's, you know, you're going to be a rock star because you're a chef and it's hard work. Being in a hot kitchen 
producing great food, producing any kind of food, honestly, is not the most glamorous position to be in. It's not TV. You're not, you know, walking around in perfect clothing and air conditioning, you know, making little perfect dishes. You're you're working hard and you're working hard with a whole team that you have to maneuver and and get them motivated to do things in a very orchestrated way, in a very high pace, in a very hot space. <laughs> so People these days that I meet, because I speak at culinary schools and sit on advisory boards, you know, it's a lot of money to go to culinary school. And a lot of these kids get out, or even adults wanting to, you know, do a career over. Oh, I cook at home. I love entertaining. And then they go to culinary school and get a job in a restaurant, and they're like, whoa, this isn't what I do. I mean, personally, I never get to enjoy an all-day cooking experience (laughs) and, you know, with nice music and air conditioning. That just doesn't happen in our world. Um, And people have to realize that. I always say to people who come to me and say they want to go to culinary school, is, well, start by working in a kitchen first. Mm. See if you like it. (laughs) See if you can handle it because it's not always pleasant. And you have to be prepared for that. And, you know, the dichotomy of going out into the dining room and seeing all these people having fun and it's air conditioning, they're having cocktails, and then you're in the back sweating and, you know, everybody's yelling to pick up this and do this and flip this. And, you know, it's very different. And for me, I love it. There's nothing more beautiful to me than a kitchen that is working in harmony. It's like a beautiful orchestra. But it doesn't always happen. There's a lot of players and a lot of temperaments in that. And they're all working long hours in a very hot space, which, you know, could be aggravating. So, you know, I I love that it has expanded, but I also want there to be a balance of reality for people getting into this business. It's not all show here. This is part of why we we do – these interviews um, is all of you, every one of you that I've talked to is genuine, authentic, and you share, you know, frankly, the highs and the lows of the business. Um, it, it, you know, what I often get is, hey, it, it seems wonderful from the outside looking in, and, and it is wonderful if you if you love it. Uh, but if you, yeah. but loving it means loving the the grind, the chaos. Um, the highs, the lows, and and all of it together. Uh, it seems to me it takes a very specific kind of personality to really make it in this business. Um, you, you almost, you know, you just have to have your sleeves rolled up and be prepared to to go at it hard every single day throughout the year, um, and and not view that as a a negative. Uh, it's a positive. You you get your thrills out of doing that. That's what I, I get from you, and I get from a lot of folks that I talk to. And the lives you can change through what you mm. do yeah. in any business, you know. I mean, so many, all demographics of kids and adults and women and men and gay and straight and black and white, <laughs> Mexican and Puerto Rican. We've had so many different types of people work for us, and when you are able to lift them up and change them, and get them passionate about what you're doing, that 
is when you have success. And that is a great feeling as a business owner to be able to do that. And for sure, there's a hundred people for every one you lift up that you can't get to buy into your Kool-Aid, but you have to like be relishing the one that you do because that's, if you can keep doing, replicating that in some way, you're going to change lives. And that happens with your customers too and the way you nourish them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, Marilyn, what's uh, so? Tell tell me where you are today with your business. How many restaurants? And you 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 but you said you've got the cookbook. So kind of give me a summary of where you are, um, your group of businesses, and then where you're going. We've got five restaurants. Um, we just bought a new one at the beginning of the summer in a more year-round location. We're trying to balance out our seasonality a little bit. We have the wine coming came out last week that I told you about called Community Vines. Uh, we have um, a ketchup we're working on called Kula Ketchup, which will be a community project for the Kula Cafe, which is a nonprofit cafe that I kind of birthed in Asbury Park, and Interfaith Neighbors is the nonprofit that runs it. We have a toy being made in production right now in a template called Libby the Lobster, which is a uh, toddler toy that we're going to use to raise money for um, environmental um, catastrophes like Sandy, which we were really affected by, um, to help small businesses and small communities recover after those things. Um, The cookbook is 11 chapters for 11 charities. It's a charity-based cookbook, but beautiful, 320 pages of gorgeous photography and recipes compiled with many friends and chefs over the years and i think that's it we're working on salts that we've been making in-house but we're not that far along with that yet um so we've got a bunch of stuff in the works and we're always looking to grow but we're trying to do it in different areas now not necessarily all in a la carte dining to try and balance our finances for our employees and ourselves um, but we're always got something brewing. Well, it sounds like that's good diversification and allows also for um, not only you, but I would imagine, you know, a lot of your staff to to grow in your areas too and take on exactly. new challenges. Yeah. Yep. Which is where, as you alluded to, you're making a difference in people's lives. You're giving people an opportunity to to grow and learn and expand their skill sets and yeah, take on new challenges and. We're doing a food truck, too. I keep forgetting about that. It's called uh, the Ohana Kitchen and Farm Stand. It's a nonprofit. We have a nonprofit called Food for Thought by the Sea. So this truck we've been fundraising for, and we have some grant applications in. It's going to be a community truck, um, no community left behind, and we're partnering with other nonprofits to raise money for them and bring awareness to their causes by moving this movable feast around our community so that was probably the biggest thing we'll be working on in the next year well Marilyn uh, thank you for doing this and congratulations on just all the wonderful things that you're doing Uh, I will say this uh, when you bring up the toy you mentioned the toy I don't know if this has anything to do with it but I will say that Marilyn has a 
very beautiful children, young children uh, that I was fortunate to get to meet when we were there a couple of years ago, and I'm sure they are thriving and enjoying uh, being a part of uh, all the great stuff you're doing. So um, just thank you. I know anybody listening to this will be inspired and it will provide a lot of really great stuff to think about. So I just appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your day to do this. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, I just think anybody who has a passion, you know, just go for it. (laughs) You know, life should be filled with passion. There it is. Life should be filled with passion. I love it. Well, you 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 draw that out of all of us that that talk to you, Marilyn. I can tell you that. So, um, I, thank you very much, and the best to you and your family and all of y'all at your uh, various businesses. And we're we're stoked to have a chance to serve y'all. And we I've always enjoyed talking to you and catching up. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Okay, bye. Bye.